Words fill a page. Pages fill a chapter. Chapters fill a book. Everyone has a story. Some have a story they are proud of telling. Others will have stories they would rather not tell. Every decision, big or small, writes the story of your life. We all have portions of our story that are still unwritten, but one day you'll be able to tell a story from this season of your life and see the hand of the author as you turn the pages. Let God write your story and you'll live one worth telling. My story, living the story you want to tell. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Free Church. We are really glad you're here with us today as we continue a series called My Story. If you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to teach today. We're going to be talking about the story of Esther, but before I do that, I just want to share a little bit of my personal story with you, if that's okay. Uh, Back in high school, for me, there was a time when I was kind of floating through my faith, I wasn't really serious about it. I grew up in a great Christian home with great Christian parents who loved Jesus and followed him, but I wasn't really serious about my faith. I wasn't walking closely with God back then in high school. I kind of knew the right words to say, you know, so that people would think that I was doing okay, and I was from the family where you like, you needed to go and make sure you were there and, and look the part, but inside it just wasn't really real for me. It wasn't an authentic, um, lived out faith. I, I I believed in Jesus, I trusted in him, but it was more of a, a fire insurance thing at that point, you know, to make sure that I didn't go to hell, and less of a, I really am going to be serious about this. In fact, I had started to actually question Christians and church in general. And it's possible that some of you are actually there right now. A lot of things about the church didn't make sense to me. See, it seemed like a lot of people had Christian rules that were extra that were just a little bit beyond what God had actually said in the Bible. And yet, these people, same people claim that the ultimate authority that they followed and went back to was the Bible. And so, because of that, I started to wrestle with some of the things that they claimed, these extra rules that were very Christian-sounding, but when I looked in the Bible, I just didn't see those things in there. I'm going to give you some examples so you know what I'm talking about. I couldn't find the verse that said that you couldn't do any work on a Sunday, I looked all over for it, but I could not find a verse that said you can't work. I I found that that the Jews weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, Saturday, but I couldn't find the one that said you couldn't work on a Sunday. That confused me. I couldn't find a verse that said that dancing was a sin or that drinking alcohol was a sin. I looked cover to cover. I could not find that. I found lots of verses that said the opposite. Um, I, I found that David danced before the Lord, and I found other verses about dancing and alcohol. I found plenty of verses that said that Alcohol is, is uh, something to be cautioned about, that you, you need to have moderation with it, certainly that drunkenness is a sin, but I couldn't find the verse that said it's always a sin for all believers to do this. I struggled to find the verse that prohibited playing cards. You know what I'm talking about, face cards, you know, if you play poker with or blackjack or something like that. I couldn't find the verse that said that that was a sin. And yet there were a lot of people around me that told me that's a sin, you shouldn't even have those things. Don't even look at them, they're, they're, they're sinful. And I couldn't find that verse in the Bible. And I'm not saying that that gambling is a good idea. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Um, But I am saying I just couldn't find the verse in the Bible that said you, you can't do this. Nowhere in Scripture did I see any verses about the evils of drums or guitars or rock music. 
But I tell you what, where I grew up, there were a lot of people that would tell you, that's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not add to anything but the organ. Like that's the only biblical, never mind the fact they didn't have that in Bible times, that's the only biblical instrument we're allowed to use. So there were all these extra rules that I found that were added to the Bible's rules. And I, 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 maybe for some of you that sounds a little bit crazy because you didn't grow up where I did. Maybe for some of you, I'm just curious, how many of you can relate to those? You've heard those before. Like, oh yeah, oh, the hands are going up. All right, so you're my people. Uh, we've been through this together. It seemed like, um, as I grew up, a lot of Christians argued and divided over issues like those and many more. And I, I should add a quick note here. I'm not trying to say that it should be open season on everything I just mentioned, okay? There may be some of you for whom God has given a conviction and a leading to, to consume less of or totally abstain from anything that I have talked about here, to use caution and moderation and discernment and wisdom and all those things we absolutely need to do. But what I saw was that too often those sort of personal convictions and preferences were represented by the people around me as if they came directly from God and applied to everybody else. And so all of you need to follow this kind of extra preference thing. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on preferences and convictions here today. That's actually not the purpose of the message. If you want to go into that a little more in depth, last year we did a series called Undivided. You can find it at efree.org slash undivided. You can watch all the messages there. See what we believe about that. Uh, It helps to identify which issues are essential and core beliefs that we unite around and which issues are secondary that we say we can have some difference of view on, and that's okay. But today I'm sharing this not because I want to get into preferences and convictions, but because it's a part of my story. And so I got to this point where I saw a lot of what I would consider to be legalism and hypocrisy in the church and among Christians, and, and maybe you've experienced some of that, and, and you know, all of these were wonderful people. I'm not trying to say anything bad about those people that represented these views, but it seemed like to me, it just seemed like to me, that the rules some Christians talked about the most, God talked about the least. Have you ever thought that? Some of the rules that Christians will talk about the most, God actually talked about the least. And when I looked at the examples of churches in the New Testament led by people like Paul and Timothy and others, it looked a whole lot different than the traditions and preferences that were being argued about so strongly around me. I just couldn't find examples of saints in the New Testament standing strong for some of these preferences. I couldn't find the scripture to back it up. I'm not saying that anyone did it with bad motives. People that add extra rules to scripture usually do it for a good reason. There's a good motivation behind it. It's actually the same motivation that the Pharisees had, which I know is bad company, but trust me, the Pharisees had a good motivation initially. The idea was we're gonna add extra rules on top of God's rules to make sure that no one ever breaks God's rules. It's called building hedges around the law. Here's God's law. We're going to build some hedges around that to make sure no one ever gets close to breaking God's laws. And so there are people over the years that have set up extra walls and extra lines to make sure that we never cross and come anywhere near God's lines. And if that kind of thinking continues for a few decades, you get to the point where the traditional preferences and convictions of people can become in their minds as valuable and as authoritative as scripture itself. That's kind of a dangerous place to be. 
One of the favorite phrases that I heard around me growing up, not in my family, but from other Christians was, that's a slippery slope. I don't even know that phrase, slippery slope. Everybody know that phrase? Okay. Anyone have that used about them? Like, if you do that, that's a slippery slope. It's one step from this thing to this bigger thing. And this little thing is going to lead to that big thing. And I'm not saying there's not some legitimacy to that argument, but it gets thrown around a lot, or at least it did uh, as I was growing up with Christians around me to try to support these hedges, these extra rules that were built around them. And so as a curious kid growing up in church, hearing these things around me, I wanted to go to God's word and test it and see if there was anything there. And so I did, I studied it extensively, and I found that a lot of these extra things that supposedly were all the things that would make me a Christian weren't in the Bible, and I started to question. And I started to wrestle with church. And I started to wrestle with, is there any legitimacy to this at all? Now, how did I go from that, right there, that position of just questioning and wandering and wondering and floating through life to a place where today I'm a pastor in a church? Obviously, there's a change that happened there, and I'm not going to try to oversimplify this, but the truth is, there is one moment I remember, one distinct moment. And I won't tell you the whole story, but I had a sports injury that required multiple surgeries. I had to take some weeks of recovery there, and um, you know, this was before like smartphones, and you didn't have you know, internet stuff, and YouTube, and Netflix, and all of that. And so all I had was TV and books, and I made it through all of my books, and I was super bored. I was so bored that I started reading my dad's theology books. And, and really just because it was, it was my last resort. I mean, it was the last thing that was around, like what else can I read in this house? There's these theology books. And as I started to read these books, I started to realize the whys behind my faith. I started to understand sort of the core beliefs, the essential things. It wasn't at all what these people were talking about. This was rooted in the Bible. And it started to make sense to me. And here's the thing, and this is really, this long introduction is really just to get to this point right here. I came to a moment where I knew I had a choice to make. A choice that, as it turns out, would impact the rest of my life and the trajectory of my life. And the choice was this. When I recover, am I going to go all in on this faith in God thing? Or am I going to keep walking down this path away from him? And not only that, but I felt in that moment like God was maybe leading me to go into some kind of a, a full-time vocational ministry, like as a missionary or a pastor. And that was incredibly scary to me. That was not something I really wanted to do. Some days it's still not something I want to do, but that's another issue. It was scary. I didn't know where I was going to go or what God was going to do through that. And so I felt like I had this choice in front of me, like I either, like God was leading me, God was guiding me, God was speaking to me that, in that moment and saying, I want you to serve, you know, this, this new understanding you have, I want you to now serve me with that full time, make that your job for the rest of your life. And I got to be honest, there was a, a moment where I went, can I do this? This sounds, this sounds really crazy. I kind of felt like if I did this, it would be stepping out into a canyon, but with, with a blindfold on, and just hoping that I would find a bridge there when my foot landed. That's what it felt like to me. But I had a choice to make. I either needed to go all in and trust in God and follow his plan for my life, or I needed to go my own way. So I'm guessing that there are some people in the room today, or maybe watching online, 
who can relate to that kind of experience. Maybe not that same thing exactly, but that are facing some kind of crossroad in life. Something that God has put before you, maybe the last week, the last month, or sometime in the last year or two, a crossroad where you have to make a choice. Am I going to follow what God is leading me to do here, or am I just going to kind of sit on the sidelines? And that's why I want to introduce you to someone named Esther. How many of you know the story of Esther? Show me your hands if you know the story of Esther. Okay, that's good. Let me just give you a brief refresher, uh, because either some of you don't know the story of Esther, which is possible, or you just weren't willing to raise your hand for me. So let me tell you about Esther. Esther was a Jew living in the Persian Empire with tens of thousands of other Jews spread around the world, but part of the Persian Empire. Her parents died when she was young, so she was raised by her much older cousin named Mordecai. The king of Persia at that time had a queen named Vashti. He wasn't happy with her anymore. She disobeyed him and uh, broke some royal protocol. And so he dismissed her as a queen. And to find a new queen, he held a beauty pageant. And they brought in women from all over the place to come and be part of this pageant so that he could choose his next queen. Well, Esther got, got sucked up into this kind of competition And she quickly became a favorite of the competition organizers. They gave her special treatment. They gave her the best place to to be at, the best food to have. And the king soon favored her as well. And so she became the favorite of the king. And so she became the queen of the Persian Empire. While she was in the palace, her uncle Mordecai learned of a plot to kill all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Every one of them. They were going to wipe them out. And as you can imagine, this was a major concern for Mordecai, a Jew, and for all the Jews living in the area. So we're going to pick up this story in Esther chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you want to, you can follow along at efree.org slash Bible. We'll have the text there for you. Or in the YouVersion Bible app, if you have that, we're under events. You can find First Free Church there. Turn to Esther chapter 4. And before we go any further, before we kind of read God's word together, I just want us to pray and ask him to teach us this morning. Would you do that with me? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word and for what it teaches us and the stories that are in it and what we can learn from them, um, not just about these people, but about how you worked with them and through them. And I believe, God, that there are some people who are watching this today, maybe in this room, maybe online, Maybe we'll watch it later, a recorded version or something like that, who are facing a crossroads in life, an important choice that they had to make like Esther was. And I pray that you would use our time in the word together this morning to guide us and lead us to make wise choices at these crossroads, to fully trust you, to take that step of faith into whatever you are leading us to do. So guide us now, Lord, as we open your word together, and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. Remember that at this point, there is a decree that has gone out through the entire empire that all of the Jewish people are supposed to be killed. And Mordecai sees this, gets a copy of the decree, and here's what happens. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned about all that had done, he tore his clothes. Is my mic cutting out? Is that me? They're working on it. Okay. We'll see what happens. 
We keep going. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. Now I'm going to skip a few verses here for the sake of time. Go to verse 4. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. So what happens here, I'm going to summarize a few verses. Esther sends a messenger to Mordecai. His name is Hatak. And Hatak goes to Mordecai to see what's wrong. And then we read this in verse 8. Mordecai gave Hatak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked uh, Hatak to, or he asked Hatak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hatak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy for her people, to plead for her people. All right, let's stop right there. Imagine with me for a minute how young Esther feels at this moment. Like all the world is on her shoulders right now. The fate of her entire people in the Persian Empire is in her hands, Mordecai is saying. She has this incredible position and opportunity to be able to step in on their behalf and re- represent them and perhaps save them, arrange for their safety. But there are two problems we need to understand. The first problem is that there was a lot of racism that went on in the Persian Empire, and so Esther kept her Jewish heritage secret in the palace. No one in the palace knew that she was Jewish. And so she stood up for her people, and it was revealed that she, in fact, was a Jew, and her uh, efforts did, were not successful, then most likely she would be killed as well. And there's another problem. Mordecai wanted her to go to the king and plead for their people's safety. But here's the problem. In the Persian Empire, to go before the king without being summoned was basically a death sentence. The default response to that was death. In other words, if people charged in there, maybe it's an assassination attempt. Maybe they're going to try to poison the king. If he didn't ask for them, then they're probably up to no good. And so when they walk into that palace, the guards are under order to kill whoever comes in there without being asked. It's one exception. If he extends out his scepter, then he gives grace and that person can come in unharmed. But that's a pretty severe penalty for approaching the king and not being asked. So look at verse 11. Esther responds to Mordecai with a message and it goes like, All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die. That's automatic. They're going to die unless the king holds a gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. He hasn't asked for me for a month, Mordecai. And you want me to go to him? He will very likely have me killed. And this isn't just a husband and wife thing, by the way. Like, don't learn anything from this. This isn't prescriptive, okay? 
What's going on here is that there's certain royal protocols that even the king and queen are supposed to follow. Now, the king can kind of do whatever he wants, but even he has some limitations or he might face an overthrow. The queen definitely has some limitations. She has to follow royal protocol. You actually see this all the way throughout the book. So this king's first queen, her name was Vashti, and she disobeyed the royal protocol. She disobeyed the king and his demands, and so she was removed. So Esther's right to be a little concerned here. And this king was actually really unpredictable too. One of the things we know from other records outside the Bible was that at one time this king had commissioned for a bridge to be built. And he set a deadline for that bridge to be built. And these builders worked on it, but at one point a storm came up and it caused them to miss their deadline because they couldn't complete the work on the bridge while the storm was going on. The king had all of those men on that team beheaded. This was not a very stable guy. And so for Esther to walk in where the default answer is death, unless this very unstable and unpredictable king holds out his scepter, is a really, really dangerous thing. And she understands this. She knows. She has a right to be scared, to be fearful about breaking these royal protocols. Now, what I want you to notice here is that Esther came to a point where she had a choice to make. Mordecai presented her with a problem and an opportunity, and she can go this way or she can go this way. She has a choice to make in this moment. She could save her people, God's people, or she could choose fear to allow her fear to keep her where she was. And if you grew up with this story like I did, you probably think of Esther as this brave young woman who took on the wicked official Haman and saved her people in the process. But what I want you to notice right now is that Esther first chose fear. Her initial response was not to dive in boldly and say, yeah, I'm going to save my people. It was to say, no, I can't do this. I'm going to have to sit this one out. Even knowing that thousands of people are going to die, my people, my relatives, my family are all going to die. No, Mordecai, I can't do it. I can't go to the king. It's too risky for me. And that may actually be encouraging for some of us here today. Because there might be some of us who have been faced with a choice of some kind, and we have actually chosen fear already. We have chosen to sit on the sidelines. Maybe you sense God leading you in some direction, leading you to take action somewhere, leading you to give up something, leading you to maybe break off a toxic relationship, or to get serious about your faith or to serve in some kind of ministry area. God's been prompting you in that. And maybe you have already chosen fear. So the dangerous thing about choosing fear is that once you choose it, it's kind of like a trap. It wants to keep you there, right? Once you choose fear, it becomes much easier to choose fear again the next time you're prompted and the next time. And it just sort of holds you there and keeps you there. It kind of feels like you're in this mental bog where it just sort of sucks you in. Have any of you ever been to a real bog? Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anyone ever dropped down into a bog? Show show me your hands if you've ever been to a bog. Okay, this is a unique experience. I did this years ago. Went with a group of people, went to a bog. A bog is like this area that's water and moss, peat moss, that builds up layers and layers over time. And it looks like it's solid ground. But if you step out onto this, you might take a step or two and all of a sudden, whoop, you drop right down in. 
And it's really dangerous because it can be hard to get out of it. If you don't have anything to grab onto, the more you struggle, you can kind of slip down further in. So this group of people and I, we went to this place where there was a bog. There were some leaders with us who were guiding us through this. And they took us to an area where it just looks like flat ground. There's grass growing. Just looks like a normal kind of field that you walk out into. Some trees around, nothing unusual. They tell us to walk out in this certain area. So I did. I took a step, and I took another step, and all of a sudden, whoom, up to my chest in this bog, and I'm stuck. I can't move. My, my arms are barely out, but that's about it, and they had leaders on either side ready to grab your arms and pull you back up because if they didn't do that, it might be really, really hard to get out of there. Fear is a lot like a bog. Once you take that step into fear, once you allow that fear to get into your life, it can suck you in and it can feel like you're just trapped there until someone can help to pull you out of it. Now Mordecai at this point gets this message back from Esther and realizes she's afraid and rightfully so, but she is very afraid and he has to somehow pull her out of this fear, help her to get out of that trap so that she will actually do something to save her people. So here's what he says in verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. See, here's what's going to happen, Esther. These people that are enemies of the Jews are gonna go out to, to accomplish this massacre, and as they do this, they're not gonna rest until they find every last Jewish person. And so they're gonna ask, what about your friends? What about your family? They're gonna, they're gonna coerce people to reveal. And even though no one in the palace knows that Esther is a Jew, all her friends and family, her relatives outside, they know. And so at some point, she is going to be found out. So don't think that your identity will not be uncovered just because you are now the queen in the palace. And then Mordecai's gonna say something really fascinating here in the next verse. It's the closest we get to an acknowledgement of God in this book. The author of this book gives us all sorts of irony and coincidence to try to demonstrate the invisible hand of God working, things that are just too incredible for it to just be coincidence. So it's very clear that the intention here is to show how God is caring for his people. But God is actually never mentioned once. The name of God is not mentioned in this book. Here's what Mordecai says in verse 14. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and all your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. See, Mordecai recognized that Esther's role may have been orchestrated by God to specifically provide this opportunity to be a part of his plan to rescue the Jewish people from persecution. But I want you to notice Mordecai's faith here. If you don't step up, Esther, someone else will. Someone else will be raised up. God's rescue was not dependent on Esther. God's rescue was not dependent on Esther. God gave Esther an opportunity to be a part of his plan, but her refusal to be a part of it was not going to ruin his plan. It's what we call God's sovereignty. There are certain things that God is going to do that he's promised to do that he said he will do. And he gives people opportunities to be a part of making that happen. And sometimes those people refuse and he raises up someone else to do what he wants them to do. 
Esther had a choice here to be a part of God's plan for rescue or to sit it on the sidelines and God would raise up someone else. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, you remember that story? What did Jonah do? His first reaction was fear. I'm going to sit this one out. In fact, I'm not just going to sit this one out. I'm going to run in the other direction. And God gave him a little bit of a wake-up call. And he changed his mind. He actually did become a part of God's plan there. When God gave Saul this incredible opportunity to lead the kingdom of Israel, Saul messed it up and God said, that's it, you're done. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you now and I'm gonna raise up another. And that's how we got David. What Mordecai was trying to do here was to show Esther the big picture. It's not just about your personal safety, Esther. That's not going to work out well anyway. There's a broader purpose here that God has in orchestrating this opportunity. And maybe it's why you're queen. So God arranged Esther's opportunity to be a part of his plan. Now the Bible tells us that everyone who follows Jesus is supposed to be a part of God's plan, has a role to play. You, if you trust in Jesus, have a role to play in God's plan. He's prepared roles for you to be a part of. The Apostle Paul at one point called it the body of Christ. He said we all have different roles to play. Some are like the eyes, some are like the ears, some are like the hands, some are like the feet. They go places, they do things. We all have different roles to play in God's plan for us. In another place, the Apostle Paul talks about the gifts that Jesus gives us, special abilities that are to be used in the body of Christ and in the world to represent him, things that he wants us to do, areas that he wants us to serve in. In Ephesians 2.10, we read that we are God's masterpieces. When we trust in Jesus, he creates us new, and he has good works that he's prepared for us long ago that we are supposed to do. We are supposed to walk in them. And in James 4, 17, we read, it's a sin to know a good thing to do and then not to do it. So for those things that God has prompted in our lives, for those good things that he is leading us to do, we can choose fear or we can choose to step out in faith. And if we choose fear, if we choose to sit back when we know a good thing to do, according to James, that is a sin for us. And as Mordecai said, God will raise up someone else to do the thing that we were not willing to do. And we will simply miss out on the opportunity to be a part of God's plan. And why would we want to miss out on that? Back to Esther. Verse 15 says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all of the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, my maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther was convinced she can't sit this out. If she didn't act, God would raise up someone else to save the tens of thousands of Jews throughout the empire. But she and her relatives and her friends, they would all die because they're in Susa. They're in the epicenter. They're where this thing is going to start God will preserve and rescue his people. But now Esther is going to be a part of it. And you probably know how this story ends. She goes to see the king. She's very fearful. But as she walks in, she puts on the royal robe. She shows that she is under authority. She shows that she's trying to follow as best she can royal protocols. There's a whole lot to that. And she comes in and he extends the scepter to her. And eventually she admits that she is a Jew. 
and she talks to the king about this decree, and the king, graciously, after a lot of work on her part, comes about and decides to help save the Jewish people. And so today, we typically remember Esther as this brave hero, this brave young woman who stood up to that evil official to rescue her people. But let's not forget that she was actually, at first, a very scared young woman who initially chose fear over faith. And when Mordecai helped her see past her fear, she stepped out and God used her to rescue all of her people in Persia. Now, I don't know what kind of crossroad you may be facing in life today. What kind of choice is upon you? Probably not one that's going to impact the lives of tens of thousands of people, but I could be wrong. You never know. But I'll bet that all of us here, at some point recently or at some point in the near future, are facing difficult choices that God has put before us. Areas that we know he is leading us to do something in. Choices that we have to be obedient to what he's calling us to do or to sit it out and and God will raise up someone else to do what he wants to do. Maybe God has been convicting you about the need to be more open about your faith with other people. Maybe he's putting a desire in your heart to get involved in some area of service or ministry or maybe he wants you to reach out to a specific person. You may have been resisting that out of fear. Maybe he's telling you to get off the couch, turn off the video games, put down the novel and pick up his word and study his word and deepen your relationship and your faith in him. Maybe he's telling you that you need to go reconcile with someone who you've been holding bitterness against in your heart. Maybe there's someone that you see in trouble, making poor choices, and God's been just nudging you, prompting you, saying, I want you to go help them. I want you to go sit down with them. I want you to go ask them out for coffee so that you can just help guide them and coach them through life. And you're going, I don't know if I could do that. That's risky. Or maybe there's a young person that you've seen that doesn't have a good father figure, a good mother figure in their life. And God's been putting that thought into your mind of that person needs a mentor. That young man or young woman, they need someone to come alongside of them and be that mentor figure in their life for them. I've never done that before. That's not me. I don't know if I could do that. See, God gives us these opportunities to be a part of his plan. And way too often, I sit on the sidelines and go, I I don't know, I've never done that before. I don't know if I could do that. That's too risky for me. Nothing compared to what Esther faced. But fear keeps me on the sidelines. Whatever choice you are facing today or will face soon, don't let fear trap you and keep you from being a part of the plan that God has made you a part of. Esther eventually risked it all, risked her whole life to be a part of God's plan and rescue her people. I wanna share one closing thought with you before we move into a different, different segment of our message, and that is this. Bravery isn't the absence of fear. Bravery isn't the absence of fear. Bravery is doing the right thing even though you're afraid. Bravery isn't the absence of fear. It's not that person that says, I'm not afraid of anything and bold and courageous and all that. No, bravery is recognizing that there is real danger, there is real risk here, and yet I'm going to do this anyway because it's worth it, because this is what God wants me to do. So if you've chosen fear already, if you feel stuck or trapped in that fear, you can change that today. You can step out and take that step of faith like Esther did and say, whatever it is, God, you want me to do, whatever you're leading me to do, I want to be a part of that. Now, we're gonna push pause right here. 
because I want to introduce you to a special guest that's going to come up on stage in a minute. And for any of you that are watching online on the live stream right now, uh, I apologize, but we're going to have to cut that live stream. We're going to come back in about 10 minutes. This is for security reasons, so we're going to go ahead and end our live stream right now to make sure. Just the last few minutes here, and we've got a closing song. But before our worship team comes up here, um, I just want to point out something else, a connection between Esther and Jesus. Because if you think about the story of Esther, it actually also points us to Jesus. There's a lot that they had in common, some things that were different. Esther was an outsider who came into a world that she very much did not belong in in order to ultimately, as a part of God's plan, rescue people. Now, she was very hesitant at first, but at great risk to herself, she stepped in there and she rescued many, many people all over the world. Now, Jesus is a man and God, part of the godly trinity, who came to this earth, a world that full of sin, he didn't really belong and fit in with, and he came here at great risk to himself to ultimately die and lose his life so that he could pay the price for the sins of you and I. And it's because of him that we are here today, gathered here to worship God together. It's because of him that we have been rescued. He rescued many, many people all over the world and continues to do that constantly. And so there may be some people here who are in need of that rescue who need to place their faith in Jesus, to trust in him and what he did for them on a cross over 2,000 years ago, to follow after him and say, I'm not exactly sure where this step is going, but I'm gonna step out in faith and trust that God is gonna lead me and guide me in this path, and I'm gonna be a part of his plan for me. If that's you, after we sing our last song, I'm gonna invite you to come down, and we're gonna have some people up here who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow and trust in Jesus. So right after this last song, feel free to come down and talk with us. Also, they're here to pray with you. So if you have any prayer requests or if anything we've talked about today has caused you to realize something that you need guidance with or help with or prayer for, we want to be here for you to help walk you through this journey of life that we're on together, learning to be a part of God's plan for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for what it teaches us. Thank you for the story like the story of Esther. And thank you for not just sharing the highlights, but giving us the lowlights as well. To be able to see that someone like Esther really initially chose fear and decided not to be a part of the plan that you had orchestrated for her, and then Mordecai was able to convince her to go ahead and continue on with it. And so my prayer for everyone watching here today is that for any of them that are at a similar crossroads in life, something that you are prompting, leading them to do, something you've given them an opportunity to make a difference, maybe in many thousands of people's lives, maybe in just one life that you are prompting them and leading them into. And Lord, I pray that this example today would be just like Mordecai telling Esther, hey, if you don't do this, someone else will be raised up. But maybe, just maybe, God has put you where you're at right now to be a part of his plan to rescue people, to do good, to do the good things that you have prepared for us long ago. So help us, Lord, to step into that. Help us to be brave. Help us to get out of that trap of fear, and despite our fear, to step forward and do the things that you have provided for us to do. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.